seated. One of the most remarkable characteristics of the human race is the resiliency of our hope. Everything we own is falling apart. Our favorite teams lose. Our financial resources are deficient. Jobs are lost. Marriages end. Relationships fail. Dreams are routinely shattered. And in the end, death silences us all. Futility, decay, death are woven into the very fabric of our existence. Yet there is a longing in our bones that motivates us to keep living, to keep striving, to keep reaching for satisfaction we have never quite been able to grasp. As an atheist and professor at England's renowned Oxford University, a young C.S. Lewis thought deeply about this longing in our bones. And obviously, people can lose it and even get to the place of committing suicide as they become hopeless. But there's this pervasive sense, this longing for something beyond. He eventually identified in his own soul a yearning for a kind of satisfaction that though never satisfied was itself more satisfying than any other desire he had ever ever satisfied. Lewis concluded that if there is a longing in our soul for a pleasure no one has ever fully experienced, then we must have been created for another world. There must be an ultimate source for this desire because it doesn't come from this world. An ultimate source for this desire that comes from outside and has the capacity to satisfy the desire that it creates. So to his utter surprise, C.S. Lewis, the committed atheist, came to realize this source of ultimate satisfaction was God. And eventually, Lewis pinned his ultimate hope to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because for any satisfaction to be ultimate, it must provide deliverance from self and from death. And this is exactly what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished. One of the major themes of the Bible is the passion of God to reveal that He is the only source of a kind of hope and of a kind of satisfaction that is ultimate. When fully grasped, this satisfaction in God is superior to any joy we might experience in this world, and it supersedes any pain or trial. This was the message of the prophet Ezekiel that he proclaimed to the Israelite nation of Judah living with him in Babylonia in the early 6th century B.C. And I invite you there to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you have a Bible with you, Ezekiel chapter 36. It was a message that they desperately needed because at this time the Israelites were living in utter despair. Now They could be called the kingdom of Judah. I'll just use the phrase the Israelites as we understand it, but they had faced some devastating circumstances. Circumstances that had dried up all hope in Israel's bones. 
but in, in an unforgettable vision. Ezekiel delivered a message of ultimate hope. Now there's a major challenge as we come to Ezekiel 36 and 37, and that is that we do not live in his world. And there's a pretty large gap between us and Ezekiel. And so what I'd like us to do for a fairly lengthy period of time here is to bridge this historical gap that separates us from the events that form the the nest of this amazing prophecy. So if you'll work with me, I'd like to set some pieces in place that help us to understand it. Now, some may not have any of these pieces in place. There's some here probably that have all of them in place, and maybe on, on, for most of us, there's certain ones that we need to uh, refocus upon. But let me just lay them out here necessary to understand this vision that we will look at uh, most carefully in chapter 37. After God, here's piece one, After God spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1, He formed the first man, Adam, from the earth. And remember this. He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. Living in this perfect environment of Eden, in fellowship with God, Adam and Eve thought they could do better than God, and they broke His law. Their decision had devastating consequences as sin entered the world. This disobedience to God and to His glory. As sin entered into the world, death then comes through sin. And Adam and Eve, and through them, mankind is in bondage to sin. But from the moment of their sin, God began a slow work of redeeming man and restoring the order that was in the Garden of Eden. This pristine world, it has been God's desire since then and His effort to bring the world back to that place of restoration, to restore it back to that place that is ideal. Now, centuries after Adam and Eve's sin, God chose to work this redeeming effort through a family, the family of Abraham, forming them ultimately into the nation of Israel, And God establishes a covenant. We think of the covenant of marriage. In somewhat of a similar sense, God establishes a covenant between Himself and His chosen people, Israel. He promises to bless them. And there are two things that are very significant in that blessing. The first is a people. You will become a great nation. The second is a land. I will give you a land. I promise to give you this land and to allow you to fill it with a people. Now, why is God doing this? We see part of it in the understanding of this covenant between God and His chosen people. If Israel obeys God's word, God will physically bless her. If Israel broke covenant with God, God will punish her. And Israel signs on. They're into this. They say, that, that's, we want that. We want your word. We will do what is right. We will follow you. Here's the purpose. That as the nations around would look at Israel, they would see in this nation the wonder of God's grace and the joy of obeying His word. That nation listens to the counsel of God and follows the counsel of God. And as they do, they are prospered. There's a beauty in their life, in their situation. We want to be like Israel. We want to come to the God of Israel. So as Israel prospered, 
God's glory would be placed on display. His glory as the source of ultimate wisdom and truth and joy. But just like Adam and Eve, Israel continued to break God's law. Continued to seek satisfaction in other gods and in their own pleasures. And according to the stipulations of the covenant, God punishes Israel, permitting the empire of Babylon to take the Israelites captive, to deport them out of the promised land, and to scatter them in small communities across Babylonia. As we come to Ezekiel, that's where the Israelites are. In 597, the prophet-priest Ezekiel was taken captive with about 10,000 other Jews and was settled in Tel Aviv, north of Babylon, on the Cheber Canal, which linked the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Simply said, he's a long ways from home. Now, Ezekiel has begun a ministry of prophecy there in Babylonia, and he continues to tell the Israelites, Israel is going to fall. Jerusalem is going to fall. Now, he's already been deported, but Jerusalem, the capital city, still stands. And the Israelites that are with him in exile are saying, God will never allow that to fall. God has promised us the land. God will keep his promise. There's a covenant between us and him. He will not allow Jerusalem to fall. But Ezekiel has to teach them about the covenant. He says, listen, you have violated the law of God You have sinned against him. You have broken his law, and God's law dictates that this judgment will come. And in fact, he has given me understanding that Jerusalem will fall. The city will be destroyed. So now, as we come to chapter 36 of Ezekiel, Jerusalem has been sacked. Israel was in captivity. There was no hope. There was no joy. There was no future. As far as the Israeli captives were concerned, God had abandoned them. Ezekiel writes more now than a decade after the fall of Jerusalem. Put this piece also together. The sanctuary, the temple, has been decimated. Its riches have been taken to Babylon. There's no significant presence of Israel in the land anymore. And now Ezekiel picks up a message of hope. Judgment has fallen on God's people, but there is hope. So we come to Ezekiel chapter 36. We look at those who have come to destroy Israel and have taken them captive with, as verse 5 says, wholehearted joy and utter contempt. The enemies of Israel have devastated the land and they're rejoicing in it. But in his jealous love for his people, God declares that he will judge Israel's enemies, and he's going to do this. He's going to unite the people and the land again. God's motivation is stated in verse 11 in a theme that runs through chapters 36 and 37 and beyond. That theme in verse 11 is not that I'm going to restore you, Israel, to the land because you deserve it, But then you will know that I am the Lord. That's the purpose. That you will see in what I do that I am the source of your ultimate satisfaction. I am your God. As God displaced Adam and Eve from Eden for rejecting the joy of His Word, so God has dispelled Israel from the land. 
And what is the result in the eyes of the nations? We know what the result is in the eyes of Israel. They're without hope. But in the eyes of the nations, remember this? What were the nations to see? The display of God's glory. What do they see now? This God can't handle it. He makes a promise to his people and he can't can't deliver. He's weak or unloving or both. He promises his people a land. They're gone. God can't cut it. That's what the nations were seeing in the nation that was supposed to display his glory and the wonder of his wisdom and his might. So notice verse 22 of chapter 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, the prophecy to Ezekiel, as God speaks to his people, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Exactly the opposite of what they were supposed to do. And verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For the glory of God's name, He promises then to have Israel return to the promised land. I will take you from the nations, verse 24, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, ultimately, bringing them back to this land is going to demand that they are purified. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Verse 35, And they will say, The land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. That is, those who have been seeing God as weak and unloving will now say the land that God is protecting is like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Verse 36, then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is again. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. So again, the name of the Lord is at stake. And again, the future of Israel, as one has put it, rests in the eternal, immutable promises of God. The chapter ends with that repeating phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. That's not God in pride, just saying, I want to be seen to be seen. That's God in all of his goodness and wisdom saying, I want my glory to satisfy the deepest longings in their bones. I, again, will be seen as God, as my people are brought back. This vision is just too good to be true, it seems. Israel, back in the land of promise, 
Edenic conditions prevailing in that land, a new heart of obedience to God, pounding with joy in the heart of every Israelite. King David, chapter 37, verse 24, shepherding them again, whether that's a reference to Jesus, the greater son of David, or to David himself in resurrected form. That certainly seems impossible. And God dwelling among his people once again. I mean, Ezekiel, are you messing with us here? Are you just telling us a bunch of stories of things that we want to hear to make us feel better in our trial and in our pain? Could this possibly be real? How on earth can this vision be realized, especially if Israel is going to continue in sin? Will it just be a repeating pattern of sin and deportation? Well, the answer speaks volumes to who God is and who we are. And though it is all given to Israel, it is significantly applicable to us today. Let's look then in chapter 37 at Ezekiel's vision. We see it setting there in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. We have here a dream vision Something of a trance-like state. Ezekiel is set down by God in an unnamed valley. And this valley, we notice at the end of verse 1, is full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. That is, if you get the picture here, the valley floor is strewn with the bones of a fallen army. God leads Ezekiel to walk among these bones, baked dry and bleached white by years of exposure in the hot Near Eastern sun. Verse 3, And then he asks a question that must have seemed so very strange to Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? Well, no. Not under normal circumstances. They're obviously long dead. Can't even tell who these people are anymore. Then again, is anything impossible with God? And so Ezekiel, knowing the power of God, tosses the ball back into Yahweh's court, as Daniel Block puts it, a memorable phrase. He says to him, O Lord God, you know. You know. Can these bones live? You know. How would you have answered God's question? Can these bones live? You may have gathered here with us today and you say, honestly, no way. I don't believe in the actual resurrection of the body. In fact, many Christians today don't. People who call themselves Christians say, we don't, I don't believe in resurrection. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead in the sense that his influence continues today. We're affected by Jesus. But an actual dead person rising from the grave, it's impossible. I don't believe it. It's just a story. It's just a myth. Something to make us feel good about life and spring and things like that. But not a man rising from the dead. I don't believe that. And maybe you come here today not believing that. Ezekiel was not chained by that presupposition. He tacitly affirms that God spoke the universe into being. He can do as He pleases with a bunch of dry bones. So Ezekiel just simply says it very humbly, O Lord, You know. 
Then God speaks to the prophet, verse 4, And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is again. Life from the dead will show them that God is. As desperately as she might want to raise an army of bones to come and march on Babylon, Israel has no power to do this, but God does. Only God can raise the dead, and He does so here for one reason, that you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember this. God raises the dead that we might know that He is God. Because it's something we cannot do. Death has wiped clean the slate of every generation behind us. No one survives in general terms. But God raises the dead to show that He is God. He will raise these bones to prove again to Israel that only He can fulfill the longing in their bones, including freedom from the captivity of sin and death. So Ezekiel obeys God's voice in verse 7 and prophesies, As I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. You see Ezekiel standing there among these bones. There's no one there but the presence of God, the Spirit of God. I mean, he's standing there all by himself. Standing among these bones, he lifts up his voice and cries out the words of the Lord. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And there's this thunderous sound as bones clanging against bones reverberate in his ears. And then his eyes are filled with a wonder, verse 8. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them. That is the attachments of the bones, the ligaments, the sinews attaching the bones together. And then secondly, flesh came upon them. Flesh forming around the skeletal structure. And skin had covered them. The bodies now wrapped in living skin. What do we have there? As one has noted, we have the decomposition process reversed. Bones attached, the flesh, the skin. And there they lie. Then there's this dramatic statement at the end of verse 8, but there was no breath in them. No breath in them. Something vital is missing. Remember Adam, formed by God, formed physically, lying there in the dust of the earth, but then God, as it were, bends over and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That's what's yet missing. Death is a separation of the body and the spirit. There's no spirit here. There's no breath from God. There's no life of God in these corpses, although their bodies have been restored. So after this dramatic pause that there is no breath in them, we read in verse 9 the report of Ezekiel, who then then he said to me, God speaking again to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. 
The four winds, the four points of the compass where the Spirit of God roams. The winds now converge on the scene and the lungs of these lifeless soldiers are filled with the breath of life. They stand to their feet, a mighty throng, poised to do God's bidding, brimming with vigor and strength. God fills the valley of dry bones with this powerful army. Only God can do this. Only God can restore the dead to life. And only God can visit Israel in her need. Now, as we come to verse 11, there's a decided shift in the text. What we've seen to this point is vision, is a dream, is, is, is an illustration of sorts. At verse 11, we now enter into the interpretation of this prophecy. Verse 11, Then he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, are they literally? Of course not. Israel's living in the empire of Babylon, scattered in communities here and there. But what he's saying is that these bones stand for the lifeless situation of Israel. God promises, writes one commentator, to put his people back on their feet. That's the point. Middle of verse 11, Behold, they say, God quoting Israel, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are clean, cut off. That is separated from the source of power and influence, abandoned to ourselves, as one has said it. Israel had found hope, security, and joy in God's promises and in His covenantal love, but now all hope had vanished. It seemed that God had totally abandoned the nation. But God delivers this message of hope. I will stand you again on your feet. I will give you life and hope. As God raises an army of dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, so He promises with literal Israel to raise her from the dead someday. Notice what happens in verse 12. As He speaks of these bones rising, being a picture of the restoration of Israel, verse 12, Therefore He says, Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O My people. Now wait a minute, we've had a vision of dry bones in one valley. Now it switches to a discussion of graves. We're no longer in the vision. Now we're in reality. I'm going to open graves. How is God going to ultimately bring Israel back to her land? I'm going to open your graves. And I will bring resurrected bodies of Israelites, the remnant of Israel, back to the land of Israel. The land, we notice it here again, it's crucial. Israel had lost all hope of God ever bringing her back to the land and reuniting her with the promise to Abraham. But God promises that He Himself will lead this resurrected throng, this remnant, back to the land of Israel. And what is the end result? Verse 13, "...and you shall know that I am the Lord." There it is again. This is why He acts that you would know that I am your God, that I am the source of your life and strength. I alone can do this, and you will know that I am God. When I open your graves, verse 13, and raise you from your graves, O my people, then you will know that I am God. I am that unfulfilled longing in your bones, that satisfaction that cannot be fulfilled in this life. 
But in that day when I resurrect the remnant of Israel, there will be no doubt that I am God. And I will put, verse 14, my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. I have promised this. You think you're dead now. You think you're lifeless now, living in exile. There's going to be a day when death is going to put you all on the ground. But I won't be stopped by that. My love for my people will resurrect Israel and bring her back to the promised land. Well, there's one major problem with this, and that is Israel's incapacity to honor the law of God. Are we to see a resurrected Israel back in the promised land, just living in sin and following idols and not seeing God as God once again? Not this time. Not this time. Because God will act with another extension of amazing grace. We go back to 36, chapter 36. And verse 26, you remember it there? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is that saying? You will be able to sense that God is God. You will want to obey His Word. You will be removed from the temptation of sin, and you will find in me your satisfaction and your joy. That day will come because I will do a work that you cannot do. You can't change your own heart, but I can, and I will. The restoration of Israel to the promised land will include a new covenant between God and His people in which this holy nation is given a new heart. That day is not, has not yet arrived. We look at what it involves. The reigning of David. A sanctuary, as chapter 37 will go on to say, that remains amidst the Israelites where God's presence resides forever and ever. That day has not yet arrived. That day when God leads this resurrected people back to the land and dwells among them. But there is one reason that we know that day will come. God never lies. God keeps His promise. He has kept every promise that He has made. The promises that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled. There is one reason that we know that He will bring Israel to life and back to the land, and that reason is that there's an empty tomb. Although Israel rejects Messiah on a large scale today, the day is coming when they will find their ultimate joy in Jesus Christ, whose death pays the penalty of their sins, the sins of His people, and gives them a new heart. And for those who know Christ as Savior, we will join them in resurrected form, rejoicing in the presence of our Messiah, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis spoke of a longing never fully satisfied in this life. That longing in our bones is a longing for God, the God we run from. It is a longing for the resurrection of our bodies and the restoration of the universe to Eden. Do you sense that longing in your soul? Has it become sweet to you, or do you drug it, run away from it, stifle it? I sit alone on a lake dock on a warm summer evening. The glow of the setting sun reflects off the glassy lake, and it is still. 
circled by pines, far from traffic. And in that moment, that warm summer air, you feel totally alive in the beauty of creation. Yet, the pleasure of that moment is surpassed by a desire for a pleasure beyond this world that's not satisfied. And I'm aware in that moment that if that unfulfilled desire was not there, I could never enjoy the beauty of that lake as much as I do. There's a pleasure beyond it. There's a pleasure to which it points. There's a satisfaction and a joy that though never fulfilled is greater than any satisfaction this world can provide. Put yourself in your happy place, wherever that is. That place where it seems that all is at peace and joy just for a moment. Do you see the satisfaction to which it points? That yearning... That yearning in our bones is for resurrection. Do we understand that in our bones there is the groan of death? We know we are dying. We may feel very alive. We may be in youth and young at this point, but we're dying. We know that we're dying, and there is sort of a groan that is always there. Something is not right. But listen, haven't we figured out by this point that nobody lives forever? Everybody we know dies. Yet there's this desire to be alive. That desire is a desire for resurrection. It is a desire for the restoration of all things to freedom from sin. How can we have assurance of any of this? We have assurance because of the God who said, can these dry bones live? I'll make them live. We have the assurance because of the promise, can Israel be returned to the land? Can I resurrect the dead? I can. We have ultimately this assurance. Everything hinges on this. On a hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. Jesus, God in flesh, the sinless Son of God who dies there as a sacrificial lamb in our place is buried. But Jesus as he said he would, rises from the dead. And if you remember Matthew 27 and the account of Jesus' resurrection, there's something that strikes us as very strange there. It says that on that day that Jesus rises from the dead, there were tombs that were opened around Jerusalem, and there were people who came out of those tombs and walked into the city. And we go, wow, that's weird. And I had to be really weird for the people that they, where they knocked on their door and said, hi, I'm back. And how many heart attacks took place? We don't know. We don't know how that worked. But we look at that and see, this is, a, this is a crazy myth. Wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what Ezekiel's prophesying? What's happening there is just the first taste of the graves cracking open. Jesus' grave cracks open, and some of the Israelites around Jerusalem are resurrected from their graves. This is all just the start. All start these graves as they hinge on the very center message of Jesus Christ who defeated death. 
We hinge all of this on Christ being the first fruits, the first one to rise, never to die again. We come into Christ as we place our faith in Him and enter into that resurrection life. And we hinge it all on the God who never lies. He has never failed a single promise, and Jesus promised this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Today, Satan has his way. Look at that over there. There is the grave of a follower of Jesus Christ. As we stand around that grave, we hear this call. Lifeless, hopeless. This is the resting place of a follower of Jesus. And the minions of hell shriek with glee. This is the end of all who trust in God. What good is it to live for Jesus? Eat, drink, be merry. This is it. This is all we get. God is not good, and He will not keep these foolish promises you find in the Bible. And over the centuries, this gleeful taunt of hell prevails generation after generation. Loved one after loved one is mowed down by death until we too lie buried and decaying. But one day, this taunt was silenced. That day when Jesus Christ came out of the grave. And one day it will be ultimately silenced because there is an empty tomb that attests to the coming victory of Jesus Christ when He, risen from the dead, will return and when His people will rise from their graves and join Him forever. Jesus Christ has risen, the first fruits of those who will rise with Him to live in His kingdom forever and ever. My servant David, chapter 37 and verse 24, the prophet says, My servant David, perhaps Jesus or resurrected David, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give, gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will see them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. God does not lie. I take this sanctuary to be exactly what it says, His sanctuary. There's none there today. There will be one there someday. Where Christ will be worshipped by Jews and Gentiles who have come to saving faith in His death and resurrection. Let me say as earnestly as I can, if you're not living in hope, every day lived with the hope of resurrection, you need to get a life. 
because the joy and longing for this yet unsatisfied desire is infinitely more valuable than anything you're living for and anything in which you're finding pleasure. If you're not living for the satisfaction God alone can bring, you are living in hopeless confusion and you are clinging to death. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior today and the dry bones of your sinful soul that finds no ultimate joy here will find its ultimate joy in Christ. You will be made alive in Him who has paid the penalty of your sin and will give you His grace, His mercy, and the joy that will never end. He promises it. Let's bow for prayer. Father, our hope is in Christ alone. There is no source of joy or hope beyond Him. We acknowledge this before You in prayer. There may be some who say, it's not for me, or I don't get it, or I don't know what I need to do to get it. I pray, God, for anyone separated from Christ, that You will bring them to understand that Your arms are open and that forgiveness is complete for those that will turn from their sin and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. I pray that you would draw such individuals to Jesus today. And I pray, Father, now that we who know you as Savior will be able to sing in testimony, Christ alone is my hope. We thank you that we can do so. Because